policy in Ukraine who provoked the Russian intervention by organizing a U.S. coup in 2014 is the notion that the United States corporations, by the way, the oil corporations, which over the past year have doubled from $2 trillion to $4 trillion their profit, but fundamental to the U.S. corporate policy is to substitute American fracked liquefied national gas for Russians. So they go to war with Russia, they blow up the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, and then they proceed to go to Germany and France and the European countries who were dependent on cheap Russian gas and oil, and say, well, we'll sell you our gas and oil for four times the price. And of course, these European countries are balking. So you get an idea of the range of subjects that I'd like to talk about from racism and sexism and poverty and homophobia and all the other evils. None of them are just accidents. You know, vote Democrat and you'll get a better deal on civil liberties and rights. So, and our idea of united front mass mobilizations where everybody can agree on fundamental ideas in the streets is not just let's get out into the street in large numbers. It's getting out into the streets to demonstrate that we are the majority. That qualitatively increases the confidence in working people, but they, not the ruling class, are the majority. But they, not the polluters, not the racist bigots, not the sexists, not the anti-abortion people, not the pro-war people, represent the interests of the future. This includes concepts like rebuilding the trade union movement which has been decimated in this country to the lowest level in the modern era, where only 6% of private sector workers are working. And by the way, the fact that Apple Computer has 3 million people working in China for near-slave wages, when they started, they were hiring teenage women at $0.06 cents an hour in factories, dormitory factories that you couldn't leave. That was what American corporations were doing in order to escape the union wages that workers had won in this country. So there's a rational explanation for all of the horrors. It's not just mean people. It's not just whether the Democrats win a majority of one or two in this coming election today. We don't know what the result is going to be, but the results for working people are going to be zero. The Democratic Party is the war party. It presides over the largest military budget in the world. Mm -hmm. Ten times more than a budget equal to the combined budgets of the ten next nations on earth. We are the undisputed cop of the world. When I say that the United States, for example, has 110 military bases, 1,100 military bases, Mm -hmm. guess how many the Russians have? I think you said four, I think it's six. And guess how many the Chinese have? One. Two. One. One. In Djibouti, mm-hmm. at the Horn of Africa, the same country that, you know, that, <laughs> that Africa, that... Um, the Road the Road and Belt Initiative. Yeah, four other nations have military bases there. So when you talk about the threat of China, that's, yeah. you know, China. 
They say that China doesn't respect anybody's civil liberties. It persecutes the Uyghurs or Uyghurs. That's true. But the scale of persecution relative to the United States that runs the world, that organizes coups daily everywhere, is unimaginable. And I could argue that we have labor camps that imprison plenty of people. Exactly. So just because they're not consolidated in one area of the country doesn't mean it's not a labor camp of racist <laughs> origins. Exactly. Amanda, <clears throat> my objective, and I'm the National Secretary of Circus Action, it's a small party, is to build a mass revolutionary party deeply rooted in the American struggle for justice on every level. A party that wins the hearts and minds of working people, that rebuilds the unions, that establishes unity between all of the oppressed, that has no interest in the persecution of anyone. We want your friends to be part of our party, to help us rebuild the socialist movement, which is, to be frank, at the lowest level in my lifetime. At the lowest level, and we can discuss why that's the case. Mm-hmm. We are suffering from government persecution from a total monopoly of the media and from terrible economic crises that have turned working people against each other. We seek to turn working people into allies of each other. So I have a question for you. So I watched, um, uh, uh, do you know this program Intelligence Squared? No. So it's it's a program where they have two sides, it's a debate, two people on one side, two people on the other side. And I watched one about um, socialism versus capitalism. And um, one of the people on the against capitalism side was um, Richard Wolff. And it was interesting because one of the arguments that they were making about the, about the, the on the cap- pro-capitalist side, was that capitalism has lifted so many people out of poverty. So I have a question because it seems to me without capitalism, you wouldn't have poverty in the way that it's currently defined. Would that be a fairly reasonable conclusion to jump to? The truth is, and even the statistics that the United States and others reported is that in every capitalist country, on earth, the distance between the vast majority and the rich is growing. They have an index that measures it. <clears throat> I could give you some. Let's but see if, if we're I... lifting people out of poverty, that means we're bringing them into the economic system that makes poverty, right? Not quite. Okay. Tell me where I'm wrong. Okay. Fundamental to capitalism is the substitution of machines for human labor in order to stay competitive. That is automation. And automation in the United States has led to the replacement of millions and millions of workers with machines. And the reduction of the wages of the existing workers. So, for example, when capitalist profits in the auto industry are insufficient, they move the plant from northern parts of the country which are unionized to non-union south. 
And when that doesn't suffice to stay competitive against Japanese and other car manufacturing companies, they move it to Mexico or they move it to some poor Latin American country. The result is, let me give you an example. When I moved to California in 1970, United Automobile Workers Union had like a million workers. And the workers at the Fremont Auto Plant, which is 20 miles from where I live in Oakland, were making $27 an hour mm-hmm. and had com- lifetime pensions and massive days off. And today, 50 years later, not only are those plants closed, but the UAW's membership has been reduced by three quarters. Mm-hmm. And the starting salary, given their multiple tier wage system, is like $10 an hour. 50 years ago, they were making $27 an hour. Today, the starting wage at a UAW plant, if it exists, if it hasn't been offshored, is practically nothing. So what do these workers do when their plant closes? They get a low-wage job. Mm -hmm. They take a qualitative cut. If they're lucky, they can find a union job. And in the 1930s, a third of all private sector workers were in unions. Today, it's 6%. So in other words, what we've seen is an impoverishment, partially camouflage. Let me ask, let me see, how old are you, like, you're in your 40s? No, I'm 50, almost 50. Okay, do you remember those old TV shows like Father Knows Best? Mm-hmm. Father Knows Best is one of the situation comedies of the 1950s. And typical was father who knows best, goes home and works every day, and mom stays home and takes care of the kids, Mm -hmm. supposedly. Today, there is no mom stays home to take care of the kids. In order to live close to where people lived in the 50s, it takes two people, if not a child, working full-time, to maintain the same quality of life, if not less, than it did 50 years ago. So this process of bringing women into the workforce at lower wages, in my era, it was 69 cents a dollar. Today, mm-hmm. women get something like 83 cents for every dollar that men earn in the workforce. But we still can't but, get the ERA passed. And we still can't get the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution passed. So... What we see is an impoverishment of workers, a lower quality of life, increasing numbers working part-time gig economy jobs with no benefits whatsoever, pensions being qualitatively reduced, dependent on the exigencies of the stock market, hours of work qualitatively increased, speed up the norm like in Amazon plants where you have computerized surveillance of every inch that a worker works in a factory. So all of the statistics in the United States and everywhere in the world show the relative increasing impoverishment of working people, the decline in the standard of living. I think one of the things that people really most want to know, younger people that are trying to be activists and organize and, and, create a mass movement, create these kinds of things or join on to them. What I hear is, but how does, what does that look like on the ground? How do you, 
how do you get, can you get anymore? Because there, I mean, back in the day, there was what, three channels on TV and everybody had terrestrial radio. So there was a, a way that media shaped the story more. So we all kind of more had the same story, but also the information channels to get information out about building a movement were different. So, so what do you say to people who say, so, so how do we start doing that? Well, that's a good question. If we see ourselves as dependent on the current capitalist corporate controlled media, we're dead. <laughs> Elon, Elon Musk just demonstrated that. He spent $44 billion to, to take over Twitter. And he announced that he was going to provide for free speech on Twitter. And he fired half of his staff overnight, 3,700 people. Mm -hmm. And the first democratic rights advance he made was to put Trump back on, who was banned because he lied, cheated, and stole. But if we have to rely on the world's richest man to provide free speech, we're dead. I agree. So what can we do? Well, the return to mass mobilizations, which is truly the major format where you can talk to millions. When you get people in the streets and you have 25 million people and they listen to the speech, of the most oppressed telling the truth, that has a deeper resonance on working people than all of the lives and half-truths and banned truths that are available in the corporate media. We live truly in what I call, I don't know if you heard of it, the Truman Show. You yep. see the, a Truman Show world, a manufactured world where everything we experience is created by the ruling class. Every image, every view of sexuality, every view of, of work is created. An Orwellian world, a Potemkin village world that portrays us as rich. Let me see if I have this. Here's a picture of a young woman. Can you see her? Yep. And she is... Um, a college athlete who's very pretty, mm -hmm. wearing a pair of tights. And the article says that women like this, superstar athletes, are consciously urged to expose more of their bodies because under a new law, they can sign contracts to get money for the use of their images or appear on TV. So they now say that this young woman her name is whatever, is earning $2 million a year by selling her body. That's the image that they want to create, a superstar, half-naked woman who happens to be a world-class gymnast. The other 99.999% of the people in the world are not in that position. They're lucky if they go to college. If they go to college at all, they're in massive, unprecedented debt by rip-off universities. A society like Cuba has free education from the cradle to the PhD. Cuba has 
one of the poorest embargoed, beleaguered countries in the world, has the highest number and percent, the highest percentage of its population that are doctors in the world. It sends qualified doctors around the world to help poor nations. In the United States, the proletarianization of the medical profession has led doctors to quit. They can't afford to spend 70, 80, 90 hours a week without exhausting themselves. Mm-hmm. So the medical profession is beleaguered. And the cost to pay back the debts to go to medical school is unprecedented. So the fact that we don't have free quality education, that a young woman named, her name is uh, Olivia Dunn, has to strip down near nude to make $2 million as the example to other women is a tragedy of what you have to do to sell yourself to make money in capitalism. So there isn't a single field. Capitalism has brought a miserization to the planet, has led to something like 2 billion people living in near poverty and the others living in semi-poverty. Destruction of entire planets, inundation by water, pollution of the air we breathe, the rivers, the lakes, and everything else. And even though everybody admits that global warming finally is the norm, they do nothing to change it because it's not profitable. And I I recently heard a rather disturbing take about uh, about climate change from um, I want to say libertarian whose opinion was yeah so what we can't do anything about it so why bother to try she's right we can't do anything about it under capitalism because capitalism is dependent on profits so, so no. the argument went like this. The argument went like this. So if we do cut back on the carbon emissions and do all the things to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, then we will reach the tipping point in 2106 instead of 2100. That's the argument. You know, I've heard that argument and you know, my party and others have refuted it a thousand times over. What I will guess it I haven't heard the refutations, and that, that would help me so that I can refute it. You know what I mean? Right. Well, we call for a just transition. We call for a transition where workers in the energy industry don't lose their job because they're converted, that they're retrained to be an environmentally sustainable energy producing system. It has to do with an awful lot of things. First, it has to do with not making the workers in the poorest countries pay, which mm-hmm. is what we do. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it has to do with taxing the hell out of the rich as a starting point. Mm-hmm. Let's take an example. You know, when Trump was president, he appointed the CEO of ExxonMobil to be his Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. I forgot the guy's name. A real creep. Yeah, well, a bright guy. 
And he appointed the CEO of the richest oil corporation in the world, or among them, uh, who was therefore the United States uh, representative, secretary of state, to go to the Middle East to conduct the wars there. So, for example, when the United States <clears throat> conquered Iraq in a war which killed 1.5 million Iraqis, the first thing they did when they set up a government headed by a U.S. administrator was they canceled Iraq's oil contracts with France and Germany and Russia and substituted American corporations. But this guy really was one one of the people who uh, who ran the country. His name will come to me in a second. And he was sitting in on a National Security Council meeting when Trump blurted out before he left the meeting, we have to increase the number of American tactical nuclear weapons 100-fold. That is 100 times more than the thousands that we already had. And he left the room, and the Secretary of State said, the guys, uh, oh, no, they know that a moron like Trump, like a moron like Bush, like all the other presidents, well, Reagan is a movie star. You know, Obama was a community so organizer. why would you want to join these... that club, Jeff? <laughs> right. <laughs> None of you. Well, that's a good question. I ran for president only to take the opportunity when people are interested to tour the country to tell the truth about capitalism. I so as I was on a couple of radio shows with the basic idea since people are interested in the elections, I said I have an alternative. So I got to speak to young people on campuses of workers and talk about real politics. The guy's name was Rex Tillerson, the Secretary wow. of State. Yeah. And Tillerson called Trump an effing moron. Trump, who never held office before, is a you know billionaire, right. real estate speculator, crook. But it's the same thing with George Bush, G.W. Bush, comes from a billionaire family. His father is a multi-billionaire Bush family. Ronald Reagan was a movie star. Right. None of these guys really runs the country. The people who run the country are the people who, the corporations who hire the people who write the tax codes, the tax codes that allow most corporations to pay zero in taxes. So... So getting back to this question of how do we do a mass mobilization, because I think this is a this is a really important thing, because I, I feel like more than probably any time since the Vietnam era that people are ready to do something, but they don't know what to do. Well, our method my party's method, mm -hmm. is called the United Front. It's a method that says socialists themselves are not going to be able to do something. We're a tiny percentage of the population with the bad ideas. So we seek unity in action over principled questions that unite, that unite millions. So, for example, we say bring the troops home now. 
self-determination for poor and oppressed people, money for jobs, not war. Those are basic programmatic issues that unite groups. We had maybe 70, 90 different groups that mobilized during the week of October 15th to 23rd for the demonstrations we had against the war. Yes, they were still modest, but they gave confidence to each other that they could do something. Mm -hmm. At this particular moment, and historically, any time there's an election, the tendency has been through my lifetime for the mass mobilizations to be minimized. Everybody's told you want to change the world, you've got to vote. Got to vote Democrats, mm-hmm. got to vote Democrats. So it's partially, it's, it's just, yeah. Well, none of these parties have any solutions other than more war, more racism, more pandemic, and so on. So I think we're going to see a period where we can return to United Front mass actions. United Front is basically saying, can't we work together to bring millions into the streets? Mm-hmm. And for those who initiate it, they get a lot of credibility because the average person says, well, gee, why doesn't my organization join this United Front? We agree with all the issues. Mm-hmm. And leaders sometimes say, well, we don't want to work with that group. They're too radical. We really support Democrats. Mm-hmm. But the pressure is on every organization to join. So, for example, when we had the demonstration in Oakland, we had some 30 or 40 groups and maybe 15 or 20 speakers whose organizations don't usually collaborate, mm. but they came from the environmental movement, from the civil liberties movement, from the Palestinian movement, all the other social movements, left and middle left, whatever, mm-hmm. to organize. And I think we're going to see that again. My experience in how to do this again, you know, came from the civil rights and anti-war movement. We used to say, okay, let's organize against the war in Vietnam. Everybody said, well, what slogan should we have? And we said, very simple, bring the troops home now. And the more conservative forces said, no, 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 that's too radical. We can't just leave Vietnam, the communists. And they said, an alternative, no, let's negotiate now. And we answered, negotiations is an unacceptable slogan because it grants the right of the imperialist aggressor of the United States to negotiate the future of another nation on earth, mm-hmm. especially the poor Vietnamese mm-hmm. who want nothing to run their own country. Mm-hmm. So we battled that out. And we used to call conferences to plan. We had a conference in 1971 at New York University to plan an anti-war movement, an anti-war mobilization. Take a guess how many people attended that conference against the war in Vietnam. I don't know. 5,000. Wow. That was one of the largest conferences ever, and it represented everybody in the movement. So, and it had, so when you say we, what does that what does that mean? Does that mean people in different organizations, socialist action? <laughs> what does that mean when you say we did a thing where we came together? Right. Okay. The we in that case was a nationwide anti-war, broad United Front coalition called NPAC, National Peace Action Coalition. It included. Socialist Workers' Party, 
which was my party at that time, but it included the Fellowship of Reconciliation, a non-religious pacifist group, the American Friends Service Committee, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, the Communist Party, anti-draft organizations, civil liberties groups, and the hundreds, if not thousands, of campus anti-war committees who formed because they were against the war, and hundreds and hundreds of others. And they all came together. I'm talking religious, pacifist, civil rights, human rights, free speech. And they all said, well, what can we do together? And they said, and we had a debate. One side said negotiations and the war. The other side said U.S. out now. And the U.S. out now, after several years, won the majority of these mass conferences, who then proceeded to organize either by coastal demonstrations or demonstrations in every city in America. Mm-hmm. And either way, we alternated every year. Either way, or every six months, we mobilized first tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands, and then multiple millions. When we started the fight against the war in Vietnam, the polls showed that something like 11% were for bringing the troops home now. The rest of them, influenced by the McCarthy era, better dead than red was the slogan, you know, said, we got to fight this war against communism. Otherwise, all Southeast Asia is going to go communist. By the time that we had won the majority, we meaning National Peace Action Coalition, and multiple other coalitions, the polls showed that 75% of the people were for a median total withdrawal from Vietnam. They had enough of this war, not only because their kids were dying, because they realized they were slaughtering innocent civilians in Vietnam in a war for profit that had no justification whatsoever. Those movements, those coalitions, that united front of thousands of organizations, mm-hmm. we were able to put page ads in the New York Times mm-hmm. to mobilize. They changed the hearts and minds of the American people. They broke the back of the witch hunt where everybody said, you're all communists, only communism. That's what it started out. The same thing with the, with the Black Lives Matter movement and Martin Luther King's movement is aimed at getting millions of people in the streets where the they can share experiences, getting back to your point, distribute literature mm-hmm. among themselves, hear each other's speeches, recruit people to their parties. And build the next step in a broader united front. And the people who don't show up like on October 15th, when we had our anti-war demonstration, mm-hmm. we had a UNAC program and a lot of skeptics of, I'm not sure I can, I want to condemn the Russians for invading, but they came. Right. Because they would be part of it because they felt isolated. Here's an anti-war protest that's supposed to be anti-war. Why not show up? So it pressed people to take another look. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same thing today. Anyone who opposes the war in Ukraine is considered pro-Russian, Putin, crazy. Which is bonkers. But just last week, amazingly, 
a guy named Jeffrey Sachs. I know Jeffrey yeah, Sachs. Jeffrey Sachs was uh, on a CNN program and he started to argue that the United States and Britain blew up the Nord Stream pipelines in order to take control of the oil market of Europe. And they screamed at him and banned him mm-hmm. and persecuted him. Yep. Well, Jeffrey Sachs, Jeffrey Sachs is no liberal. Right. He has Columbia University credentials mm-hmm. and uh, United Nations credentials and research. And but before that, in 1989, he was famous as a Harvard University professor who orchestrated and organized the transformation of the Soviet Union back to capitalism with his shock therapy. Mm. He said the way to do it is to have the bureaucrats divide up the public corporations into shares give all of the individual workers a share, which is worthless, loan the American, the Russian oligarchs the money to buy back the shares and they became private capitalists overnight. And when they became private capitalists, the pensions were eliminated, the jobs were eliminated. So they got and all the, the money and they got to keep all the money. And the quality of life of the Russian people qualitatively diminished. The literal standard uh, lifespan diminished by 10 years. And the country was reduced to abject anarchy. Jeffrey Sachs was the one who theoretically organized this shock therapy. Don't do it slow. Quick transition to capitalism. And here we go. 30 years later, Jeffrey Sachs is basically accused of being a Putin communist. Anyone who opposes it. It's the same thing. If you look at the... Do you you think that... uh, Can you just expand a little more about the fact that Jeffrey Sachs was in charge of... It was associated with the shock thing and and the fact that he seems to think that America and Britain blew up the Nord Stream too. Can you just say a little more? Because I'm missing, I think I'm missing something obvious maybe. <clears throat> okay. Jeffrey Sachs is a leading American intellectual. Mm-hmm. Columbia University, maybe emeritus. Yeah, he I'm familiar a, with him. A million posts, but in the, in the era when Gorbachev and Yeltsin headed the Soviet Union, and Gorbachev basically said, "We're ready to." You know. Right, right. I get, I get that. I guess I'm. What do you think that it means that now Jeffrey Sachs is saying that he thinks the U.S. bombed Nord Stream too? Okay. Given that what I'm, saying, what I'm saying is that any serious intellectual mm-hmm. understands the origins of the current war Mm -hmm. in Ukraine. But most of them are frightened to say anything about it. So, for example, the facts that I'm going to tell you about the situation are shared by leading intellectuals like John Mearsheimer, Mm -hmm. like Noam Chomsky, Mm -hmm. like Chris Hedges. Mm -hmm. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize 
New York Times, a 15-year reporter who's been from the air. All of these people know what happened, and they write it down. What happened was that in 2014, the United States was was deeply concerned with Ukraine, which was suffering from massive debt and uh, economic collapse. The head of Ukraine was Viktor Yanukovych, Mm -hmm. who was from the east of Ukraine and pro-Russia. And he was offered bailout agreements by the European Union on the west and by Russia on the east. And the European Union offered onerous terms that required massive social cutbacks, high interest rates, and massive layoffs, Mm -hmm. whereas the Russians offered a much more generous package. So the Ukrainian parliament took a vote, and they voted to accept the Russian terms for the bailout. President of the country, Yanukovych, was a old-time Russian bureaucrat in Ukraine. So the United States, so there were protests about Yanukovych's corruption, but they were quickly turned into right-wing protests orchestrated by the Nazi party of Ukraine in conjunction with the United States. The Maiden Square protests were taken over by the right-wing U.S.-backed forces. John McCain spoke on the platform with open fascist speakers from the Svoboda Party. Mm. The U.S. Under Secretary of State, Victoria Nuland, passed out freedom cookies to the demonstrators. My comrades, who were socialists in the Ukraine, in the Maiden Square, were forced physically out of the Maiden Square, their literature torn up and beaten by the fascists. Mm. And at that point, an amazing thing happened. At that time, unknown people from the rooftops of the Maiden Square opened fire on the demonstrators of the Maiden, killing 100 people. It was immediately blamed on Yanukovych, whose government was Mm. being protested. And one of the foreign ministers called Victoria Nuland on a telephone, which someone taped. And Nick Nuland said, you know, it's a pity Yanukovych did this. And the foreign minister said it wasn't Yanukovych. It was the Svoboda party and the fascists. Mm-hmm. And they had a long conversation, and all of her conversations were taped. But what happened was they blamed it on Yanukovych. The fascists immediately stormed the parliament building called the Rada, banned the majority parties from participating, took over the, in 2000, February 14, took over the building elected a new government. These are fascist-led armed forces, including five or six open fascist ministers. I give you their names if you want them. Minister of Defense, Minister of Agriculture, all open right sector or Svoboda Party 
these are fascist parties. Mm-hmm. And they had to choose a prime minister. And the European Union wanted a liberal type guy. And Victoria Nuland was recorded saying, fuck the EU. We want uh, Yatsenik. And Yatsenik was appointed the president. The finance minister was an American citizen who the day after the parliament convened was granted Russian citizenship. And Joe Biden's son was given a job, $50,000 a month on one of the oil corporations. At that point, this new fascist-led coup parliament met. And it said, one, we banned the language. We banned all the majority parties from participation. We canceled the government's contract with the Russians, Mm -hmm. and we accept the European term, and we order the Ukrainian army to march on the Donbass. Is that the Minsk Accords they're talking about, that agreement, or is that something the Mits, different? The Minsk came a month later. Okay. So the soldiers in the eastern Ukraine were ordered to take over the people who opposed the coup, which are Russian-speaking people whose language is banned in the schools and everywhere else. The Russian, the Ukrainian army in the Donbass deserted, and they sided with the Donbass people. The same thing happened in Crimea. They all joined the Russian army. So the coup government didn't have anybody to slaughter the Russian-speaking people in the eastern and southern Ukraine. So they had to negotiate, and they negotiated at Minsk. The negotiations were overseen and approved by the French, the Germans, the Russians, and the Ukrainian coup government. Mm-hmm. It basically said, okay, okay, we wanted the army to slaughter you, but we couldn't do that. So we signed these agreements. And the agreements basically said, as in the past, we'll stop the fighting, we'll organize a ceasefire, and we'll organize a constitutional change to have a federated system prevail where there's some degree of local economy in the eastern country, like states in control of the United States. Right. Everybody agreed. They were even approved by the United Nations Security Council until the United States said to the Ukrainian government, no, we don't want to settle this thing. And for the next eight years, the coup government, in all its permutations, continued to attack the Donbass and kill 14,000 Russian-speaking people. In the meantime, the United States and NATO, on the borders of Ukraine, trained hundreds of thousands of people, including from 38 different nations, the same kind of terrorists that they hired and organized in Syria to try to bring down the Assad government. They were preparing for another invasion. They were preparing. And they mobilized hundreds of thousands of troops at the end of the eight years, fully armed, ready to take over this time for good, the Donbass. And at that point, Putin said, hey, you know, you're you're about to invade. You got nuclear weapons. You're threatening on our own border. Mm -hmm. And the Russians invaded. 
thinking that they could quickly move everybody back, mm-hmm. take over Kiev and organize it as they had been asking for a negotiated settlement along the lines of Minsk. Mm-hmm. What I just related, and I wrote a pamphlet on it, a mini book, and several articles, is the same kind of thing that Jeffrey Sachs is aware of and writes about, that Chomsky writes about, that, that, you know, that all the others write about, but they're afraid to say, and they even say the U.S. instigated this war. The U.S. instigated the fascist coup. The U.S. financed the coup. Mm-hmm. The U.S. was prepared to, you know, the U.S. promised that it wouldn't expand NATO. Right. The U.S. promised all these things. They all say that, but they feel it necessary to criticize Putin for invading. So they are silent in that question, or they have a one-line sentence saying, Russia shouldn't have invaded, Putin's bad, but we should negotiate. And today, anyone who says negotiate is shunned, like the 30 members of the so-called progressive Democratic Party caucus. They signed a letter saying, gee, this is ridiculous, threatening nuclear war. You gotta negotiate for crying out loud. There's a solution. Everybody agreed to Minsk. Why not now? Mm-hmm. And I said, why not now? And I, my latest article answers that question. The United States decided on a trillion dollar gambit to use this war to, by blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines, which were jointly built by the Russians and Germans, mm-hmm. a billion-dollar joint project to bypass Ukraine and to ship Russian natural gas and other stuff to supply Germany and Western Europe. And the United States said, you know, by blowing up that pipeline, those pipelines, we can instantly substitute American frack natural gas for Russians. We just took the Russians out of the fossil fuel business, which is the main aspect of their economy by blowing up those pipelines. Mm-hmm. Literally within days, they went to the French and said, hey, we can sell you natural gas, right. liquefied gas at four times the price. And everybody complained. Even today, you know, the articles in the New York Times, uh, Uh, it says, griping aside, Europe sticks with Ukraine. See the article? Yeah. And what it means is the Europeans, all of Europe, they say, why the hell should we pay American prices? And the United States is United States is because we have to pay them. That's why you should have to pay them. We have to pay them. <laughs> and because you're dependent on us and you can't get it from anywhere else, so fuck you. Mm. Forgive my language, I'm sorry. Oh, that's all so, that's all right. So all any serious intellectual understands that these pipelines were were not and I wrote an article on the pipeline. I wrote an article that said, Joseph Biden says, I guarantee you, if Russia invades, there will be no pipelines. And they and said, I've well, seen it. I've seen it. I know. It's yeah. Crazy. And see Biden, you know, 
how do you know? And he said, believe me, we know. And, you know, a dozen other leading figures, many of whom we quoted, all say there'll never be a pipeline. Mm-hmm. We're not going to allow it. We want to substitute in yet another oil war. The Iraq was an oil war. Venezuela was an oil war. And Iran. All these nations are sanctioned by the United States because they're led by the evil empire. But in truth, they are the major oil-producing nations on Earth. And the United States, whose economy is in crisis and recession, wants to maintain a monopoly on fossil fuel production. And the New York Times reported, literally, that in the last year, the profits of the major U.S. oil corporations have risen from $2 trillion to $4 trillion. Yeah, and that's the profits. I know. I know. Um, I want to I wanna be respectful of your time, and I've got, a, I've got another... Um, appointment here in a few minutes so I do want to I do want to give a chance to wrap up is there anything that you would like to leave folks with and um, places where people can reach you and that kind of thing besides through me because I will be more than happy to pass along whatever information well um, my party joining my party we're a very tiny party with a lot of big ideas we've looked to recruiting and educating this new generation of young people who are angry at what's happening to their lives and what's happening to the world. So your collaboration, Amanda, is invaluable. And we're prepared to go to any length. We have to meet you and talk to you and sit down and with your friends and see if we can engage them in our small party. We need to get we need to get together sometime soon because I think that's an important feature. Being in the same place is really important. Um, I I just wanted to mention I don't know if you know the Omni Commons. Do you know anything about Omni Commons? No. So um, Omni Commons. So it's a longer conversation for another time when I have a little more time. But um, they're having a fundraiser on Friday. It's where Food Not Bombs stores their food in between doing their deliveries and stuff. It's a community resource and their balloon payment is coming up. So they're having a thing on Friday. They have a building in downtown Oakland. Yes, that's right. I've had meetings there, yeah. you know, yeah. meetings. So, I think it's on San Pablo or something like that. Yeah, I think it might be on Telegraph. But the point is, is they've got a $900,000 balloon payment coming up that they may not be able to make. So they're trying to raise a whole bunch of money. So maybe tell your friends that this is they're having a struggle. I don't know. I don't know anything about the organization, except it sounds really good when I heard them interviewed on It's Going Down. So send me an email on it. Happy, I'll pass happy it. to do that. Happy to do that. But in the meantime, in the coming weeks, let's set up a time where you and some of your friends can get together. Yeah. Maybe you can come over here. We'll do a Zoom. We can do a Zoom, too, because I've got a few people that wanted to be here today, but they had to work. Great. I understand. Let's do it soon, and thanks so much. Ditto. Thank you. Okay.
right, that was Jeff Mackler of the Socialist Action Party. Welcome, everybody. I'm glad to see there's folks here. I wasn't able to uh, take the, because I was trying to record. Do you know if, you, if anybody would like to contribute, this would be a good time to call in. But, Gilbert, welcome. Hey, what's up? How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Just getting home. I'm about to run an errand. But I um, I actually wanted to ask the gentleman about his party because I caught the tail end of it. Yeah. Socialist Action Party. Action Party? Yeah. Okay. Socialistaction.org. Socialistaction.org. Okay. Essay? Yeah. Yeah. It's SA, like Socialist Alternative? Uh, different from SA. It's, uh, it seems like a small a small group of socialists in this area. I don't really know the lay of the land politically yet in the Bay Area, so oh, okay. oh, I so know there's the yeah, San Francisco Bay Area. But oh, it's, okay, it, it's, okay. a na it's a national party, because I, when I was looking on the website, one of the people that writes is in Minnesota, and I think his his vice presidential candidate was from Minnesota. So I think they're nationwide. I I just don't know that much more about them. It's hard to get him to talk about it. <laughs> Damn! I called. I wanted to ask him about it. <laughs> I'll tell I you, think I can definitely. I think we've spoken you about this. You're you're the Amanda that ran, right? You ran a while ago. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think we're talking. Yeah, I think we're talking about that, about how you know you said you had can't come out of pocket and all that stuff, and I I was yeah. saying that we need to you know form a party for us to effectively run if we are gonna run. Yeah, so, no, for sure, for sure, especially for anything where it requires a party. I what I find more interesting is these parties that actually do something other than just campaign and some support candidates, they actually work in the communities. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. I mean, that's this what, is new that's to what, me, that's, but I know that's what parties do. School. Well, yeah, that's not what, I in mean, my experience with, with having known Democrats. <laughs> that's all. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I get it. It is, um, we do have weaker movements for some reason <laughs> here, but I'm if you look at any, if you yeah. look at um, other countries, I guess is what I meant, or just historically, uh, yes. that is how they're able to build. Fuck, man! Nobody calls me as soon as I get on. Everyone calling me. Um, <laughs> um, what? Oh, so that—that's what I was gonna say though, because it is through actions that you build a base, though. You know, so that people actually can relate to the leadership and get active. Because other than that, you're just, I mean, preaching to a lot of people that don't even want to hear the, you know, the right. sermon. I guess. <laughs> right. And, and, and I appreciate what he was saying about United Front and like making coalitions of smaller groups. And I think that that's kind of where it has to start, which means, you know, just me and a couple of people. Right. It doesn't have to be something super formal. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's um I think the 
the most important part is to get people to start forming parties, honestly. To get that concept and that movement going. Because right now everyone is, well, not everyone, but the majority of people in America are like, they're just chasing their tail. Right. You know, like, how do we invent the wheel? And it's like, the wheel's already been invented. All we have to do is apply, you know, some some, some know-how. Like, for example, I, I talk about it. I actually don't know how to found the party. I haven't looked into it, but I'm sure it's like any organization, you you know, articles of incorporation and you have your leadership and, but you then know, you Gilbert, have so, but also, I kind of, maybe this is the anarchist in me. I kind of also feel like that's like you're slotting your organization into the current structure if you're doing that. Whereas if it's oh, a less man. formalized situation, I mean, I realize that it, that there's tax implications for raising money and those kinds of things, but it's like mass movements don't feel like they're incorporated <laughs> i guess it's kind of what and and maybe that that's just part well, of what we, has to be done i just don't know yeah i think the thing is if we're not incorporated then we aren't really anything you know what i mean that's the sad reality like i mean we can say oh we're gonna come together but it needs to be run like a business it needs to be run with leadership it, there needs to be orders there needs to be actions there has Could to be accountability, be? though. If not, then it's up in the air. There is no accountability if there's no rank and file. Like if there is, let's say, for example, a chief of, you know, whatever, propaganda or someone that's in charge of doing actions, whether it's door knocking or or, or let's say they have a mutual wing or whatever, a mutual aid wing or whatever it is, like the job has to get done and there should be someone that's held accountable for it getting done or not getting done. You know, well, and when it's so account- informal, no one really can be held accountable because it's, you know, oh, we're, we're, so, we're volunteers. Okay, so, so going with that argument, so what does it look like if I'm in an organization and I don't do the thing I was supposed to do? What does it look like to hold me accountable? Well, I mean, that's a good question. That's a good question. Like, for example, like, let's say you're, you're in charge of something and you fail to, to, to come through. I, I would assume it we would try to find someone that first well first off what was the reason there has to be a reason you see what i mean if there's a formal system you see what i mean you can start with like for example oh i just didn't feel like it that's not a legitimate reason we need to replace you i'm sorry i like you or whatever but you you need to be replaced now i had an emergency i broke a leg my car like something legitimate okay it didn't get done we still need to do that though guys it wasn't so a complicated. I think you could still have a process in place for for achieving that that end without having to be a formal organization. I think the problem would be more on the money side. Can I because... give you a, a counter? A, yeah, please. A counter question. It's a counter, but in question form. How how do you think China would have been able to develop if they didn't have the Communist Party running the situation to the point that they are right now? Like, I mean, deep down, do you think, a, you know, an ad hoc group of people would have been able to accomplish with, you know, literally raising more humans out of extreme poverty than ever in the history of humanity? No other country has accomplished that. 
Absolutely not. It and can't if be see, done by an informal group. Absolutely not. But what so, I'm saying is that is that I don't think you have to start a political party with incorporating. I think you can start it with getting together with people and figuring out what are the things that are important to us so that by the time you're incorporated, you do well, have a more solid built. But thing. we already know what that is, though. Like, I get like if it was a group of people that weren't on the left, OK, figure it out. But I mean, we're on the left. We know exactly what we want. You know, look, we That's believe why in we infight so much. That's totally why we have but, all this infighting. But, but but the thing is, though, the infighting is like make believe, though. Like if we actually write out, like I said, a bill of rights or or a manifesto, we agree on most of the stuff. In fact, I would like if we say, you know, do you believe in education from pre-K to PhD? Most leftists will say, yeah. Do you think it should be free? Yeah. I mean, housing, do you think there should be any homeless people or do you think housing is a right, you know, and the state should build permanent housing for people that can't do it on their own? You know, public libraries. OK, cool. Well, public transportation, it should be free, just like you got a book. You don't get charged like it. It's re we really do agree. Like, honestly, I would question what we would disagree on. Because a lot of the times that there is disagreements, like when I used to help DSA, it was a lot mm -hmm. of the capitalist, bourgeois, managerial types that don't like Marxism, don't like communism, call people tankies. Like it's the capitalists in those organizations that really do the splitting. Like we're pretty yeah. aligned, honestly. Like um, if you're a leftist or, or a Marxist, like you you believe that banks should be highly regulated to the point that they should actually not be in existence and that the state should be in charge of credit and loans and stuff like that without a profit motive like it is right now. You know, like, so it's like, I, I really publicly finance campaigns. We agree with that. Why would we be in favor of the, of the modus operandi right now where a bunch of billionaires basically bribe a bunch of wealthy individuals to run to maintain the status quo. No, publicly financed. So you, for example, wouldn't have to come out of your pocket and you can get funds from the state to run because it's a civic duty. Now, honestly, this whole infighting stuff, part of the reason why there is infighting is because there is no leadership. And mm. everyone, it's so unpopular to be in charge or have a, a leadership. Figure. Oh, it's, it's cool to be against authority. What the fuck? That shit makes no sense. We're against certain authority, but we do need some kind of authority to to even gauge ourselves. You know, like and, and the job must be done. It has to be done. There's no way around it. How is it going to get done? Well, you need individuals to take on those tasks, build a team to accomplish it. If not, everyone's trying to, oh, we should do this. We should do that. And then they all go home. Go watch their Netflix, do whatever the fuck they're going to do. Come back to the meeting. No, we should do this, do that. And it's really like limited, you know, like, for example, if it was like if we had someone that was running, then now we have a campaign to rally against and spread the word of not only the candidate, but what the candidate is hopefully going to try to accomplish and what socialism means and why this works together. It's connected. It's not one or the other, you know, and deep down, you're not a capitalist. You know, do you believe like, you know, you know, and no, the, I mean, the argument makes itself, honestly. Yeah, I, I myself, I mean, 
I've I've done a lot within the Democratic Party, unfortunately, hoping that people, you know, could kind of see past the lies. But the truth is, like, you need a class conscious movement to fight the class war. What happens is everyone is trying to fight a class war with identity politics, and and that is oh, a yeah. no win situation. Period. And if if it lines up right with the capitalists and and you know, divide and conquer, you know, scary news every day, nothing good, humans are bad, I mean, war, 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 no explanation why shit's going happening, oh, inflation, inflation, no explanation, let's just blame Putin, okay, Putin, talk to your neighbor, oh, Putin, <laughs> you right. know, so no, it's, it really is, and, and I think if it was, once again, if we could someday, within the next couple of months, Come together, coalesce, even on, on a Zoom or Discord or a, a call-in to, to go ahead and map out just the basic 10 things that, that we agree on, you know, and, and maybe in, in certain states we can start incorporating. Let's, or, um, so, so can, Gilbert, I'm, I'm, I'm up for setting a, setting a time and date on, for, for a Discord conversation how would what would be a good way for trying to set a date and get people together cuz i'm not i'm not lo the logistics side i'm sure is very sophisticated now with all the inter internets and webs and things but I, I i don't know how to do that part but if we could organize a meeting i know some people that would come for a meeting where we could talk about what we could do the other thing is i think there's a potential opportunity with this gerrymandering issue to get in between the Democrats and the Republicans. And I'll expand on that in a minute, but I want to give you a chance to reply. Yeah, no, um, I got invited to a couple of, um, of discords that are um, talking about that. Unfortunately, my, my disc, I'm having trouble with my discord with my password. But so I wasn't able to, so I can't even give you insight on it, but I could send you the link. I'm sure the individual that sent it to me won't mind because I, I think actually he was on the call a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about you running and the party. Yeah, My phone we, was there is a discord I, set up. There's a discord yeah. set up. I don't know how to, because like, obviously the people who are here know about it but how do we let other people know about it and how much further down the road does it need to be so that we make sure people can be i mean you know what i mean i don't know the scheduling logistics i guess is what i'm asking you which is probably not even in your necessarily in your wheelhouse but that that's my next question how do we practically pragmatically take the next step to to do a meeting like that because i think that's important all right so we need we need an organizer that's first to, to at least be able to get people's information okay to, to reach them that that would be first okay um, I'll, or, I'll 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 be organizer i don't know what the job entails yet if somebody will help me figure out how to do it i'll put in the work well i think it, it would just be first accumulating email list okay that, that's that's all i can text you anyone that's interested go ahead and text your email to Amanda. And, yep. and from there, we can um, start slowly developing um, a group of individuals and see how serious we are and what yep. the logistics of actually doing it are. Because 
like I said, we talk a lot about doing it, but we never yep. actually launch it. And I think now is an opportune time. Everybody dislikes the Republicans. Everybody yep. dislikes the Democrats. Even if they say they like them, they know deep down they're corrupt and they have no other choice. I mean, realistically. Yep. So this is this is probably the, the time right now. Um, yeah, so I can definitely do that. And then it would probably have to be through a Zoom call. I would, okay. I would assume because, um, so I the, know that I know the discord just added video, but I think you might have to be a paying member to do the video. I think Twitter, but you know, Twitter, what? <laughs> so, and, and I noticed that, that Reddit just Reddit has added some new features also maybe anticipating potentially issues with and and even even old school Facebook still does some stuff, right? But uh, I'm, yeah. I don't have a Zoom account, but but I'm I'm down for let's I, okay. So let's start. My job right now is going to be people should text me. You you if you're hearing this on call in, go ahead over into my message. Send me a message with your email, and I will send you an email to confirm that it's you, and so we get that whole. So, and I won't promise I won't sell your email or whatever, and we'll start getting people's emails together. And what are you doing, Gilbert? And then, and then after that, what we have to do is we just have to schedule a meeting to discuss it. Okay. Okay. And then we set a date. So I think there's like a, there's like a doodle poll. There's a couple different online tools that once I get people's emails, I can send the doodle poll out and then people can like check off when they're available. So we can try and have it be at a time when most people would be able to be there. Yeah. And I have a question. How good are you with YouTube? <laughs> um, no, cause, no, cause it sounds funny, but like actually all this is going to be pointless if it isn't actually recorded so that people know what's happening so and can Zoom, get involved. Yeah, so Zoom can record. I know, mm-hmm. and, or, and or you know what might be, what might also work if we do like a YouTube with Streamyard. I think that would probably be the cheapest way. I, 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 I keep hearing about Streamyard, and it seems Dream like it's Yard. like, yeah, and it seems like it's a Zoom, but I don't think you have to pay for it. Maybe someone listening can fill in any blanks on that because i know a lot of people have been using Streamyard as of late okay so that's another that's another potential resource and and i and i'm sure that in the next few days um other people will come up with some ideas and i'm often in these rooms and and i see some familiar faces stupid i hope your new job is going well um yeah so so we have to can we just, set it can can we set it try and set it try let try to get this done by because if I don't have a deadline even if it's one that I that I get whiplash when I race by it what's well, a good what's a good I'm available, I'm available at night or on the weekends okay so tar- targeting like let's say by the beginning of December we try to have a, at least the meeting scheduled even if we don't have the meeting. Yeah, that's actually that that'd be a good um good date, approximate date. 
because we need to start discussing it. That's the first yep. thing. Yep, and I then, agree. And if then we need to... me, now I have to race to try and get the emails uh-huh. and everything and get stuff done before the 1st of December to try and have a meeting. Yeah, which so. is good because even if it's it, the amount of people isn't important right now. The point is that the ball needs right. to get rolling so that then we put in our part and start sending out emails so people can come to, we would have to set up like a socialist conference where right. we start discussing that and start inviting people like Richard Wolf, Bill Fletcher Jr., Dan LeBron, people that actually, you know, have pull and credibility and see where they're at, you know, and get their insight. Because at the end of the day, if we don't make this a mass movement, I mean, what what is the point? Right. Honestly? It's the united front, you know, thing that that Jeff was saying. I, I really appreciate you engaging me in this in this part of the conversation, Gilbert. And I'm I'm I'm. Yes, Schnarf, we are going to need money. You're you, you're playing the, the, the lotto, right? <laughs> Somebody's buying a ticket to that one point whatever billion dollar. And the and the point Snarf makes is absolutely crucial, though. No, no, and, I I know, oh, I, know yeah, no, but, I know, but we have and to the, have people first, you know. Exactly, and actually, it is through this process and building it that people will get inspired enough to chuck in a couple bucks towards the potential of what could be. You know, that yeah. that's really where they need they need somewhere to believe. And trust me, like we all of us came out of pocket for Bernie, I'm pretty sure. In t- 2016, if you were on the left, you you probably came out as as much as you probably want your money back now. <laughs> I, I know I know a lot of people that came came out of pocket, you know, just because of the potential of change. Right. So if we actually do it and. and and move with it. I mean, now now is an opportune time. Yep. I and know people. And the thing is, at the end of the day, let me tell you how I believe this will will function. Like, so we build it with a conference. But the point is, once we actually have a party, the end goal isn't to make that the main party. The point of that is to try to coalesce with other parties, to to make sure that we have a unified front we all agree on we're, we're anti-war we're anti-capitalist you know because that that's how that's how it can develop yep we i totally agree you know but, but yeah and then we have a, we have a bunch of people that have a, a bunch of great ideas and different insights so it's only a matter of baby steps and it'll form itself or tell yeah. us what we're doing wrong or, you know, like if we don't get in this battle, it's only going to remain two parties is the problem. Yes. Yes. So that brings me back to my, my thought and it's only a half formed thought, but, but I was listening to radio lab, I think it was, and they were talking about gerrymandering might not have been radio lab might've been this American life. I think it was this American life about gerrymandering and the and the struggle in one state can't remember which one right now but uh that that each of the districts was is like such a narrow margin democrat over republican or republican over democrat and this has been done in every single state so because of the laws and the way that they have to try and make it fair 
there's so many districts that are so closely divided between Republicans and Democrats, we might be able to slide independents or some other party in there, in that gap between the Republican and the Democrats in each of those districts with a unified front approach. I'm in California, and there's a party here called like the the, the Peace and Freedom Party. No, them. And they yeah. actually, and they make it on the presidential ballot. I mean, you know what I mean. And they're not really too big. They're not pushing throughout the year. I mean, and if they do, it's normally at something called the Harriet Tubman Center. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, if we can even get half of what they've done. You know, and put candidates on ballots. A lot of times, it's just two people. A lot yep. of times, it's just one person. Yep. I don't. I have yeah. no idea if Socialist Action is just Jeff Mackler in the Bay Area. I know there's other people in other parts of the country, but I have no idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can find out. Yeah. I mean, may, maybe part of this exercise is reaching out to these other parties and having the conversation because I know there's also the Socialist Equity Party I think it's called yeah so no absolutely so I'm I'm down um cool well I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna gonna close out send you my email reach out to me and and I I just sent you my I I sent you a message with my with my phone number in it. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so we'll definitely uh, remain in contact. We'll try to get this ball moving one way or the other, and um, at the end of the day, come out with a, a type of platform. Because if there isn't a platform, we really don't know what we're fighting for. And right now, everything seems pretty cut and dry. Right. You know, with ten. It's so, amazing, though, Gilbert, when you really start writing it down, there's a lot to a platform. <laughs> oh, there's a lot. There, yeah, there's so much. Because even even within um, the the whole body, we would have resol- we could have resolutions as well. Right. To me. I mean, there's just so much, but it's like, it's our, oh. Don't get killed. No, someone just killed. Oh, shit. All right. Cool. Well, like I'll just better, listen. Yeah, I'm about like to. This person's, this person's over here just crashing to the curb and is blocking the, oh. the street. I'm, I'm turning in my ballots right now. So. All right. In this bourgeois democracy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll catch you later. All right. Thank you for calling in, Gilbert. Bye. All right, y'all. You bring. You can bring the money. Thanks for being here today. Um, Crowdsourcing the Revolution will be back on Saturday, noonish time, uh, Pacific Standard Time. And bring your ideas. Let's figure out how to actually do something now that we are of one mind, or at least a bunch of minds looking in the same direction.